Well, find your way back to your seat. Glad you guys get a chance to just greet each other. You hearty souls that came out on Time Change Sunday, 9 o'clock. Just extra stars in your crown for that. Well, uh, when we started back in the book of Romans, we talked about how it would be like traveling up into the mountains. And we got to chapter 8 a few weeks ago. TJ said that this chapter is like one of those scenic overlooks along your journey. You know, when I travel in the mountains, I love to stop those places and just, you know, take in the view. Well, if Romans chapter 8 is one of those scenic overlooks, then we're going to reach its most panoramic view here in its final verses. Now, many of you who have read the Bible long enough, you probably have a favorite passage in Scripture, one that maybe encourages you or has special meaning for you. Maybe like the 23rd Psalm. You know, the Lord's our shepherd, and he, he walks with us both in green pastures and through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to fear. He's with us all the days of our life. Or Philippians 4, with all of his encouragements. You know, rejoice always. Don't be anxious. The peace of God will guard your heart and mind. I can do all things through Christ's strength. Or maybe John 14. Jesus doesn't want us to be troubled. He's gone to prepare a place for us so that we can be with him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He'll do whatever we ask in his name. Well, for me, Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And these nine verses at the end of it, to me personally, are the greatest in all Scripture. They encourage us, they remind us, they assure us, they comfort us, and they persuade us. Paul brings this chapter to a powerful, almost poetic conclusion. And it's my happy privilege today to walk us through these compelling verses. So if you haven't done so yet, grab your study guide from the worship folder, fire the one up on the New Life app so we can get going, okay? We're going to start by reading these verses from the end of Romans chapter 8. We'll start in verse 31. Follow along as I, as I read it. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. It, to me, it's a worship experience just to read these verses. So New Life, you ready to dig into them this morning? All right then. Let's look at this passage in detail and see what the Word wants to say to each one of us. 
So verse 31 starts with, what then shall we say in response to these things? Now, Paul's been starting the main sections here since back at the beginning of chapter 6 with a question like this. So what things does Paul mean? Well, I think mainly Romans 6, 7 in the previous verses and 8, but especially verses 28 through 30. Remember verse 28? We looked at that last week. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So I think what Paul's saying is he's still talking to the same group of people he was talking to in verses 28 through 30. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. One group meets both of those criteria. That's Christ followers, believers in Jesus Christ. So Paul says that all things work together for good for Christ followers. And then he's going to start to build the foundation for this truth through a series of rhetorical questions. The first question comes at the end of verse 31 here, and we touched on it last week. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, is that really a question? The word rendered if here could also be translated since or because. And I think those would probably be better translations. It isn't really a question at all. God is for believers through all circumstances, good or bad. So since God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, is this saying that nobody will ever be against you? I'd be willing to bet that everybody in here can think of somebody who's not exactly in your corner. And if you're a child of God, you've got an unseen enemy in the spiritual realms that constantly seeks to oppose you. So clearly Paul isn't saying nobody in this life will be against us. What Paul is saying is that because God is for you, nobody can successfully be against you. Well, your adversaries may find temporary success, especially in this life, but in the end, you're going to have ultimate victory. God is more powerful than any enemy we will ever face, human or spiritual. God is for his children. Then Paul spells out the reason for that this is true in verse 32. The reason that gives him, and hopefully us, absolute confidence that God is for us and nobody can successfully be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And you see the gospel peeking through here? I want to make sure that we get the implications of the connection Paul is making here between the gospel and the fact that God is for us. Now, verse 32 starts out by saying God did not spare his own son, but instead gave him up for us. Now, I think many of us that have heard the gospel message many times, we've become desensitized to the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. We don't get the true size of the obstacle that God had to overcome to provide our salvation. So what's that obstacle? Well, I think it's so obvious that it's easy to miss. It's God the Father's all-consuming love for Jesus. Jesus is the only non-adopted son of God the Father. We saw back in verse 15 of chapter 8 that believers in Jesus are adopted into God's family. But Jesus is that older brother in the family by birthright. So giving Jesus up meant that the Father was voluntarily sending him to be endured being mocked, 
betrayed, abandoned, rejected, disrespected, physically tortured, separated from the Father, and finally killed. Now I ask you, parents, are, are you wishing that on any of your children? Or would you do everything in your power to prevent even one of those things from happening to them? But consider, God the Father, he's no human parent. He's a perfect father with perfect love and a special bond with Jesus between two members of the Trinity I don't think we could even begin to understand. That's what did not spare him is saying. What God did is a very hard thing. And the death of Jesus was not just some helpless reaction to circumstances. It was a choice made by the Father to give Jesus up. Now, sure, Pilate and Judas and Herod and the Jewish people, they all had their part in it. But just as Romans 8.28 alludes to, God used their evil deeds and turned them for the ultimate good of all mankind. In John 10.17, Jesus himself said, he laid down his life and nobody took it from him. He could have stopped all the proceedings leading up to the cross anytime he wanted to. But it's God the Father that ultimately delivered Jesus over to death. The Father could have prevented all the other parties from doing what they did. He could have supernaturally rescued Jesus from the rejection and the betrayal and the pain. He could refuse to allow him to, to make the sacrifice. He didn't do that. It's the single greatest act of love ever. God the Father chose love for us over love for his one and only son. Just consider that for a moment. Do you see how big what God has done for us? Do you, do you grasp the grand scope of God's love for mankind? You know, we sometimes sing those words, I, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And I think this side of heaven... I don't think we're ever going to really get it. So in this sacrifice made by God, we see this progression here from greater to lesser, from hard to easy, from gigantic to puny. In other words, if God did this incredibly hard thing, how will he not graciously give us all things? That's the easy part. Now what things is Paul talking about? He isn't saying because God gave Jesus up, I can just ask God and get anything I want, like, hey God, how about a million dollars? What Paul is saying is that if God gave Jesus up, Christ followers can know for sure the gift of eternal life he has offered us through what Jesus did on the cross is an ironclad guarantee. And nothing can take it away. Child of God, you don't need to have any doubt Mark it down, it's done. God gave up his son so that if you're one of those called according to his purpose, your future beyond this life is 100% secure. Then verse 33. Who will bring a charge against any of those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Now we get to Paul's next question. Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? Or said another way, who can accuse a Christ follower? 
Now, Paul's using this courtroom analogy here. And this question is a lot like verse 31. Does this mean nobody ever accuses us? No, the the enemy does that constantly. The book of Job gives us that picture in chapters 1 and 2, as Satan unjustly accuses Job to God. The Bible says that Job was a righteous man, but Satan tried to discredit his motives. Jesus himself was tried, convicted, and executed based on false charges. But also, like verse 31, nobody who accuses us can finally be successful. Nobody can make their charge stick in heaven's courtroom. They will all fail. Then Paul says it's God who justifies. So he's going to tell us why the charges don't stick, because it's God who justified us. The blood of Jesus covers our crimes. Now, think of a balanced scale. That's been a symbol of justice down through the centuries. So imagine your sin being placed on one side of that scale. So it's like this. Unfortunately, it just takes one sin to tip the scale because there's nothing on the other side to counterbalance it. So when the scale tips, the verdict is guilty. And unfortunately, the only penalty a holy God can hand down for this guilty verdict is death. Paul said that back in Romans 6, verse 23. And I dare say, we don't just have just one sin. So our sins pile up on that scale, and eventually the sin gets to be like a mountain. Now, it'd be easy to be real discouraged about that. What can balance out that sin? What can tip the scale back in my favor? So many people think that, well, it's the good things that I do. That'll go on the other side of that scale, and, and if I do enough good things, it'll outweigh the sin and tip the scale back in my favor. But the Bible tells us that even the good things that we do are like filthy rags. They're worthless. That's not what goes on the other side of that scale. You have to put your trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. When you accept his sacrifice as your only hope to escape sin's penalty, all it takes is one drop of his blood shed for you and it outweighs an entire lifetime of sin. Scale tips back in your favor. When you put your trust in Jesus, it becomes about his sacrifice rather than my actions. One drop of his perfect blood will outweigh your mountain of sin so that you can avoid the guilty verdict that you deserve. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the charges against you have been dropped. Those who believe in Jesus will never be found guilty. God the Father, the judge, will pardon you in full because of the sin-canceling weight of the blood of Jesus. Then verse 34, who's the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So another question here. Who is it that condemns you? Now in Paul's courtroom analogy, it would be like the prosecutor, right? That's bringing the charges against you. And it would be the enemy who's playing that role. And like we've talked about, our enemy accuses us all the time. The Bible even calls him the accuser of God's people. But it's the judge who's going to pronounce the sentence. And as I said a second ago, our ultimate judge is God the Father. 
So the question here, it's similar to verses 31 and 33, but here the focus is totally on who stands between you and your accuser. Who is your defense attorney in this heavenly courtroom? Who argues your case before Judge God? That would be Jesus. So here we have the gospel again. Verse 32 talked about the Father's part. Verse 34 is talking about the part that Jesus plays, what he did and what he continues to do. And Paul gives us four things about Jesus. He said, first, he, he died. He didn't just die. He willingly gave his life, as it says in Mark 10, 45. He died in our place as our substitute to provide the only payment that's enough to outweigh our sins, his blood. Second, Jesus was raised. Paul says Jesus died, but more than that, he was raised. Now, if Jesus was, you know, just died and that was the end of it, well, so what? Everybody dies. It's the fact that Jesus isn't still dead that's the point here. Now, notice that it doesn't say that Jesus rose from the dead. It says that he was raised. The Father was so satisfied with the work that Jesus did at the cross that he vindicated him by raising him from the dead. That's evidence that the death of Jesus is an acceptable payment our sin. And then third, he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Now, what does it matter where Jesus is sitting? Well, this is Old Testament imagery of absolute rule. The right hand is the place of power and authority. Jesus is the ruler over everything. If he's in your corner, you've got all the power you could ever need. And then fourth, Paul says that Jesus is our intercessor. Maybe in this courtroom picture, maybe the word advocate's a better fit. We talked about Jesus as our defense attorney. He's making the case for you, and he's better than any human lawyer. (laughs) What human lawyer says, I've already served your sentence for you? Jesus defeated all condemnation through his death and his resurrection. He's alive. He's ruling over all creation, he, and he intercedes for you. He's taking your case as your advocate. And he says, Father, regardless of what they've done, my blood pays for this child's crimes. So your accusers, they get no traction. Those witnesses in the courtroom ready to speak against you, they never even get called to the stand. The accuser doesn't stand a chance against Jesus Christ. Then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul asks the final rhetorical question here in verse verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And just to be clear, He's not talking about our love for God. He's talking about God's love for us. So the answer is, again, nobody. So no being can separate us from Christ's love, but what about difficult circumstances? Well, the answer is still no. And I think that's why Paul gives this comprehensive list of terrible things here. He doesn't want us to think, well, some really horrible thing is going to come along and that can separate me from God's love. Not so. Let's run through Paul's list. Trouble and hardship. I think those are obvious. 
Persecution. Paul, of all people, knew about persecution, both giving it and receiving it because of Christ. God called Paul, in spite of what he had done in persecuting the church, and Paul was well aware that God was going to be with him and love him through any persecution he faced in his ministry. Then he says famine. Now, maybe in 21st century America, this would be less about scarcity of food and maybe more about lack of money, maybe not having a job. And he says nakedness. Now, Paul's not talking about not having any clothes at all. He's talking about being vulnerable or unprotected. Like maybe not having a coat in winter. Then he says danger. You know, many of our brothers and sisters around the world face danger in their daily stand for Christ. But look around America today. People who take a stand for Christ are ridiculed, harassed, hurt economically, looked on as haters. I don't see that getting better anytime soon. And then finally he says sword. This is talking about being the target of a weapon. And the word Paul uses here implies a weapon that can be concealed. None of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Paul isn't saying we aren't going to face calamities in life. Verse 36 is a quotation of Psalm 44.22. It makes that clear. It's saying believers may face trials or even death for Christ every day. This goes back to what Paul said back in verse 18. Any present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us in the next life. You've got to keep that long-term view in mind that Pastor Steve's been talking to us about the last couple of weeks. What Paul is telling us is that we can have perseverance despite suffering. God's love and power doesn't promise that it's going to exempt us from difficult things. It just promises that we won't be alone as we face them, that God will sustain us as we endure them. John 16, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What Jesus has done and is doing gives us ultimate victory over the difficulties of life. That brings us to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, despite the difficult things we might face, we're more than conquerors. And Paul says it's through him who loved us. Who is that? Verse 32, the father that gave the son. Verse 34, Jesus who died, was raised, and is ruling and interceding. And if you go back to verses 14 through 16 of chapter 8, you can add the Holy Spirit who leads us, who squashes our fears, reminds us that we're God's children. Paul says here, here we're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. And the Greek word he uses means to overconquer. Like, when God's for us, we defeat these things in a blowout with success to spare. You have more than enough power to do whatever God calls you to do. And Paul reminds us this overconquering is not about us. It's because of God the Father, Christ the Son, the Spirit and dwelling within us that we have this power. And finally, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul starts these final verses by saying he's convinced. He's thoroughly laid out his case throughout Romans so far. And because of what God had revealed to him and what Paul had experienced in his life and his ministry, he was certain of what he was about to say. And he's really answering his question back in verse 35. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. And Paul illustrates this fact with another list. But this time, it's a list of things that can't come between believers and the love of God. In in this case, he's setting up this series of opposites to show the scope of God's love. He starts out with death and life. Now, for the believer in Jesus, death isn't the end. It's a homecoming. It's victory. And all the cares of this life... All those difficult circumstances Paul listed out in verse 35, none of them could put a barrier between us and the love of God. Then he says angels and demons. Now, an angel's never going to try and separate you from God's love. It's just here kind of as one end of this spectrum of spiritual beings. Demons, on the other hand, fallen angels, they're going to always try to separate you from God's love. And Paul is saying that no spiritual being, good or evil, can come between us and the love of God. Then he says present and future. Nothing we have experienced or are experiencing or will experience can separate us from God's love. Then he says any powers. Now, the meaning of this one is debated. It's the Greek word dunamis, which means miracles or mighty deeds. No extraordinary event can come between us and God's love. But a lot of scholars think that Paul just uses this word figuratively to mean persons with positions of power or authority. Any human power is going to be a mismatch up against God. Then he says height and depth. Now the Greek words here, this is very interesting, refer to the high and low points of a star's path. I think Paul's trying to convey this infinity of space in every direction, from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the ocean, anywhere beyond this earth and the universe, nothing can separate you from God's love. And then he adds anything else in all creation. So since only God himself is not created, it truly sums up anything and everything else. There is absolutely nothing or nobody anywhere that can come between you and God's love. Because of God's power and love expressed through the gospel, we can be as absolutely sure as Paul was that nothing can separate us from his love. Okay, take a second, catch your breath. That is an amazing amount of deep truth packed into nine verses. It's really the culmination of everything Paul said in Romans so far. In those first eight chapters, Paul's walked us through the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Remember back in chapters 1 through 3, he talked about our sin, our lack of righteousness. Then at the end of chapter 3 through chapter 5, he talked about grace, how, how God credits believers in Jesus with the righteousness of Christ because of what Jesus did at the cross. 
In chapter 6, he talked about sin and not abusing grace. Then he reminded us how we can be free from condemnation of the law in chapter 7. And here in chapter 8 so far, Paul's assured us about forgiveness if we're in Christ. He's reminded us to walk in the Spirit. He told us that suffering this life doesn't compare against future glory. He's reminded us that God is a God who takes bad things and turns them for good. So after all this groundwork in chapters 1 through 7, in chapter 8, Paul's really talked about assurance. Being sure of what Jesus did and what it means to those who believe in him. So let me summarize quickly verses 31 through 39 of Romans 8. Paul says four main things. First, if you're a believer in Jesus, God's for you. He gives you all the strength you need for anything you're going to face. You're more than a conqueror. Second, if you're a believer in Jesus, nobody can successfully bring a charge against you. Third, even believers in Jesus are going to face trials and difficulties in life, but when you do, God's going to be right there with you every step of the way. And fourth, if you're a believer in Jesus, nothing can separate you from his love. Now Paul said back in verse 38, he was convinced that God would love him no matter what. How about you? Are you convinced? Are you convinced that all four of these truths that Paul spelled out in this passage are absolutely true? I'm guessing most of you are saying, yeah, Pastor Joe, I'm convinced. I believe these things. Well, that's great. Glad to hear it. Let me ask you this. Does your life reflect the fact that you believe these things? Are you living like you are convinced that all four of them are true? When life hits you with something undesirable or hard or unexpected, does your reaction line up with Romans 8, 31 through 39? So in our remaining time, let's make these things personal. Does your life demonstrate that you are convinced? So let's look at all four of these truths, plus we're going to add one bonus one. First, are you convinced that God is for you? So when that thing happens in life that isn't according to plan, when some negative thing comes along, does your reaction to it reflect that you believe that God is for you? Now, I think too often when a difficult thing comes along, we react more like what we believe is that God's just waiting to bop us on the head. Our reaction's more like, well, if God was really for me, this would have worked out the way I want it. If God was for me, I'd have gotten that promotion. If God was for me, I wouldn't be facing this financial setback. If God was for me, I would have gotten a more favorable diagnosis. We already read John 16, Jesus said we will face difficulties in life. That's not a maybe, it's a given. And James goes further than that and tells us a possible reason why in James 1, verse 2. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is telling us that sometimes God allows us to experience hard things in life, not as some kind of slapdown, but because God's for us. 
He's allowing it for our good. He wants to use it to help us to grow. Yeah, I know Scripture talks about sowing and reaping, and sometimes hard things can be a result of our own decisions or choices or actions. God's still sovereign. He could supernaturally take away harsh consequences or prevent them, maybe make them less harsh. But God allows us to experience a lot of these things to strengthen us, to help us become more like Jesus. So when a setback comes, do you say, why are you against me, God? Or do you look at the situation and say, what are you trying to show me in this, God? How are you trying to stretch and strengthen me through this? What can I learn here? Be convinced like Paul was. If you're a believer in Christ, God is for you. It's not a question. It's a fact. Second, are you convinced that no one can condemn you? New Lifers, throughout our study of chapter 8, I've been praying for you. Because I think so many of you are carrying around a load of guilt and shame about something from your past, or maybe even something in your present. God wants you to be free from that. If you're a believer in Christ, I want to go back and repeat those first three verses of chapter 8 for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus followers, listen to me. No matter what you have done, it's not about you. It's about what Jesus did for you. He became a sin offering on your behalf. He was perfect, so you don't have to be. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? He said, it is finished. Case closed. The perfect, sinless life Jesus laid down for you covers your sin. Stop trying to take that on yourself. You, you, you know, it's really, it's pride to do that. It's, it's like saying what Jesus did isn't enough. It's making your situation bigger than what Jesus did on the cross. Give it to him and leave it there. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Because of the great love of God, your sin's taken as far away as the east is from the west. How far is that? Well, it's infinite because the east and west have no end. When you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is taken as far away as it possibly can be. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're currently involved in something you shouldn't be, I want to remind you what Paul said back at the start of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We're those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't say, well, you know, Jesus died for my sins, so I can do anything I want. These verses say we're dead to sin. So if you're involved in something you shouldn't be, get out. 
Instead, your verse needs to be 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Turn from your sin, ask for forgiveness, then trust you're going to receive it just as God promised here. Be convinced that no one can bring a charge against you. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ. Third, are you convinced that God is with you in difficult circumstances? Now, we kind of touched on this as part of number one, but maybe you're going through something right now. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel like God's far away. I know I felt that at times myself. It just seemed like God wasn't right there close to me. And when I've had those times, I've had to remind myself it wasn't God that moved. If this is where you are, I have some simple verses that can help you. Matthew 6.33 Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. James 4.8 Come near to God and He will come near to you. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, He is able to save completely those who have come to God through Him because He, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. In the middle of a trial, in tough circumstances, seek God first. Stay close to Him. Know that Jesus Himself is praying for you. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the words of Jesus himself. You can take that to the bank. And remember Romans 8.28. God is in the business of turning what's bad into something good. Be convinced that God is with you through any situation you're going to face in life. Fourth, are you convinced that nothing can separate you from God's love? I know there's some of you that, that maybe you feel like you know, things that you've done stand between you and God. We already talked about the fact that because of Jesus, nobody can bring a charge against you. But I think for some of you, it isn't someone else bringing the charge against you. You're the one bringing the charge against yourself. You're saying, well, you don't know how I am, Pastor Joe. If only I was a different person. If only my personality wasn't like this or like that. If only I didn't have this one fault. Listen to me, if that's where you are, and I know there are some of you that really struggle with this, you need to remember it's God who made you, and God doesn't make any mistakes. He made you the way you are for His purposes. If this is you, listen to these words from Psalm 139 and take them to heart. Verse 1, you searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Jumping down to verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me written in your book before one of them came to be. You are God's creation. No matter how you are, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter if any of those lists of things Paul gave are true and apply to you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. Regardless of what you think of yourself, regardless of what you've done or what you have or what you don't have, or your personality or your faults or your shortcomings, none of that will separate you from God's love. If this is you, I'm challenging you, lay down your misconceptions in this area and walk in the truth that God loves you no matter what. And finally, here's that one bonus item. It isn't one of Paul's main points, but it's woven all throughout these verses. Are you convinced of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, throughout this message today, I, I've kept saying that these verses apply to believers in Jesus, to those who are God's children. Is that you today? Maybe some of you are going, well, I'm, I'm not sure. Or maybe you're saying, no, it's, it's, that's not me. The word gospel just means good news, and it's the best news ever. We talked about the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. He was unjustly accused. He, he went to the cross and he willingly died there. We saw that his blood, even one drop of it, is more than enough to counterbalance a lifetime of sin. All the things that you've done that have broken God's law. And yeah, Romans 6.23 says the penalty of sin is death, but because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he can be your substitute. His death can pay the penalty for your sin. His blood poured out can tip that scale back in your favor and God can declare you not guilty. Now, if you aren't a believer in Jesus, then you've got to pay that penalty for your sin for yourself. And that death sentence isn't physical death in this life. It's eternal spiritual death in the life to come. Throughout Romans 8, Paul's been assuring us that we can have total confidence in what Jesus has done for us, what he's still doing and what he even has yet to do, don't walk out of here today without being absolutely sure of your eternal destiny. Be convinced that you've believed the gospel and your faith is in Jesus. Be convinced that God is for you. Be convinced that no one can condemn you. Be convinced that God is with you through difficult circumstances. And be convinced that nothing can separate you from God's love. So I ask you, what then will you say to these things? As we looked at each of these truths that Paul so carefully and powerfully addressed in these verses, is there one of them, maybe even more than one, that you're struggling with? Does your life reflect that you are convinced in each of these areas? If not, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to take a step today. Don't just hear the word. I'm asking you to take action so you can be sure you're convinced. I'm privileged to be the pastor that oversees our prayer partners. These are wonderful people who just, they have gifts for praying for people. 
I know them. And I know they stand up here week in and week out just asking God for the opportunity to pray with somebody and help them in their life and their walk. You know, maybe you've thought about receiving prayer from them, but something's held you back for whatever reason. If you aren't convinced of all the truths that we've talked about, take a step and come receive prayer from one of them. Don't walk out of here and say, well, you know, I'll just work on being better at being convinced. You don't need to behave better, you need to believe better. Take this opportunity and come to a prayer partner and just say, will you pray for me that I'll be convinced of whatever it is? And tell them whatever that thing is so they can pray for you. You know, just saying it out loud to somebody is going to help you take steps on that journey. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. If God's nudging you, come and receive prayer. If you want to be convinced that you believe the gospel of Jesus today, the prayer partners would love to help you know for sure that you're a child of God. So let me pray for all of us. God, I am so grateful for this passage. It's wonderful depth. It's challenges to us. It's reminders to us. And God, I know that as we look at this truth, I know in our minds a lot of times we're going, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that stuff. But living in a way that lines up with it, that's a lot harder. And so God, I'm just asking you today for the folks that are struggling to be convinced of one of these areas. I pray that you would allow them. God, give them the boldness to just come and receive prayer so they can take some steps forward in their, in their walk. God, I pray that you would uh, help them then to lay down whatever misconceptions, the lies of the enemy that are in their mind. I, I pray that you would help them to lay down all of that and embrace these life-giving truths. And God, as we sing now, I pray that you would just help us to leave behind all of our thoughts and all of our desires and all of our wants and what we think our needs are and align ourselves with you because you are for us. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.